Welcome to Unaborted, part three episode of our long-form conversation with Claire Chambers and Audrey Werner. We are going to talk about how Kinsey's bunk social science on sex actually became used as the 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 the, the follow the science uh, academic credible proof that actually then becomes used to bolster the agenda to change those uh, those Judeo-Christian laws that protected the family, marriage, and children. If, if, if Hugh Hefner was the bridge between Kinsey and culture, then in this next episode, we're going to talk about how Kinsey social science also gets bridged into law through the American Law Institute and their assault on Judeo-Christian laws specifically designed to protect the family. Guys, ideas have consequences and bad ideas have victims. I'm Seth Gruber and this is Unaborted. Talk more about how far that rabbit hole goes down yes. with how those ideas and shyanch about the sexuality of children actually had major familial and child consequences for how rape and pedophilia was treated. Can you build that exactly. out for, for our listeners? Well, and, and when we look at the authors of the Model Penal Code, um, they were law professors, one from Columbia University. Um, one, Morris Plasco, who was a New York magistrate and attorney, um, he stated most so-called statutory rape cases involve situations in which a male has had a sexual intercourse with a consenting young female. We would have preferred to have even lowered the limit for the new age of consent, which became, that's the thing, when Kinsey's science came in and they were changing the laws, they lowered the age of consent. So it would have been adulthood. Now it was lowered to 16 or 15. And then he said, in our opinion, a girl at puberty, now think about when girls go into puberty, fully understands what she's doing when she engages in the act of sexual intercourse. And the fiction of non-consent, which the law sets up, doesn't correspond with the facts. And he was quoted as saying that in sex offenses in the new penal law, Brooklyn Law Review in 1966. Wow. So the uh, actually the Model Penal Code, uh, when I looked it up, uh, the history of the um, uh, ALEC uh, or the American Law Institute Model Penal Code, which RSVP did a great summary of it from 1923 to 207. And in it, the uh, Model Penal Code, they're now recommending, the American Law Institute's now recommending to lower the age of consent to 10 years old based on Kinsey. Today. But they're accepting that 12 can sometimes be to, a today. proper age of, yes, a proper That's, age wow. of consent. This was in 2007. Wow. But what's interesting is, and, and I said this quote to you before on uh, your one podcast, where uh, they, they had all of these experts who had been trained, uh, you know, that were humanists, communists, that were trained in Kinsey science, who then were quoted in all of these law reviews to influence the lawmakers. And I said this quote before, the ex ex sometimes extreme seductiveness of a young female is a factor which has no place in the law, but it certainly affects motivation. Even at the age of four or five, 
This seductiveness may be so powerful as to overwhelm the adult into committing the offense. The affair is not always the result of the adult's aggression. Often the young female is the initiator and the seducer. And that was from uh, Ralph Silvanko and uh, uh, Phillips, Psychosexuality and the Criminal Law in Vanderbilt Law Review. <laughs> So in 1962, so, but what was interesting, because I knew this because my attorney general has not signed out model penal. Okay. So now they have, uh, there's a new model penal code revision that's out and as of of last year. And, um, I just looked it up. You can Google it, but, um, so far 36 state attorney generals have rejected it because it is loosening penalties against the perpetrator mm-hmm. because wow. it's still they're still pushing Kinsey's science yeah the, yeah, the ultimate wow. goal is to remove all that's, laws that's right. so anything goes so, so if an adult wants to have sex so with an infant guys, down the road <laughs> guys the slippery slope conservatives <laughs> yes have always been right that's yes. that's that's what audrey is trying to tell you we yes. they, claire was called a conspiracy theorist and a tin fat tin hat wearing <laughs> weirdo in the 70s. Um, we're being called that today. Yes. The conservatives were called that when they said, hey, if you encourage sexual chaos um, and adultery, um, you're, you're eventually going to get rid of no-fault divorce laws. And, and the conservatives were told that they were conspiracy theorists, slippery slope, you know, yeah, exactly. Uh, what happened? Yes. No fault divorce laws. And then yes. and the conservative said, if you continue down this road, <clears throat> you're eventually going to call for the redefinition of marriage. Yes. And oh my gosh, we were laughed. We were mocked. <laughs> yes. We were reviled. Obergefell. Yes. And then conservatives were saying, actually, even before Obergefell, the true Ezekiels who were watchmen who understand mm-hmm. these ideas were warning even before Obergefell right. that, that the, the, the route that the modern left is trying to take you is to pedophilia and to adult child um, relationships. That as long yes. as there's consent, yes, then there's nothing wrong between relationships between children and adults, and maybe even incest. Which which actually shouldn't surprise us, given that uh, a, a later executive director of um, of the Kinsey Institute is named Wardell Pomeroy. And Wardell Pomeroy told Time Magazine in a 1980 interview called uh, "Attacking the Last Taboo." Um, he said, incest between children and adults can sometimes be beneficial. Um, and yes. it need not be a sign of mental illness. Was like, I was like, whoa. And he was a researcher for Kinsey. And he was a board member for Secus. Yes. And he later took on the role of executive director can I, at the Kinsey can Institute. Can I also interject, though, Seth? Um, can I interject the fact that, um, remember what I said about Morris Plesko, that knowledge is... Con- that he's talking about knowledge, you know, that if a young girl has the knowledge, knowledge is consent, right? Um, in in medicine, we have to, you know, educate you on the procedure you're about to get and the risks that are involved. We give you that knowledge and then you either consent to it or you don't. Seek us. Sex education. What are we doing? We're giving children knowledge at five years old yep. on sex. And if we've given them knowledge, then that's consent. Then wow. they, right. they can consent to this act. And that's why one of the laws that was brought in was called, uh, because it's against the law to show um, obscenity to children. 
But in 43 states, it's legal. That's what I was going to ask you next. If you show it in schools or in libraries, you can show porn to children and that is legal. And that's why you have all these parents now who are just finding it. Yeah. Um, but it's been there for a long time, for a long time. But yeah. parents, I think because of COVID and being home and, we you know, parents learning, are yeah. starting to wake up to this issue. Yeah. So. Now, to, as we continue to frame the timbers before we turn back to, to you, Claire, and discuss a little bit about this guy named Lester Kirkendall, because we don't have time to discuss all of the revolutionaries yes. that were tied up with Sikas. But yes. but if yes. we were to focus on one or two, he would be one of them. But before yeah. we yes. turn to him, Claire, um, uh, Audrey, I think. I think it's important to understand how intertwined so many of the revolutionaries were. Yes. Um, sometimes even down to the family level. Yes. So Alan Guttmacher oh. was the president <laughs> of Planned Parenthood yes. in, well, before Roe came down, so in the, in the yes. 60s. But he was also the president of Planned Parenthood in 73 when we get Roe v. Wade. Yes. And... Um, He's the namesake of the Guttmacher Institute, which yes. is Planned Parenthood's statistical research branch. Right. Uh, now, Alan Guttmacher had a brother. A twin brother. Can you connect that piece <laughs> in yes. regards to the footwork or legwork being done yes. with the model penal code? Well, again. Which, again, to remind everyone yes. who's listening, the whole goal was to remove dozens of Bible-based laws yes. that were specifically structured and passed to provide protections for children, family, and marriages. Yes, yes. And uh, his twin brother was Manfred Guttmacher, and he was a psychiatrist, and he happened to be one of the advisors to the Model Penal Code. So he had input- To the American Law Institute. To the American Law Institute, yes. Wow. They used him as an advisor to draft the Model Penal Code. So you have Alan and his- <laughs> His um, his brother. I mean, it's like we were continue. talking about the Huxleys. Yeah. You know that Julius. Oh yes, we'll talk. Julius we didn't, we didn't talk about the Aldous Huxley and, link and yet. And Aldous. Can you Aldous guys talk about wrote, that? Well, Aldous wrote "Brave New World" yeah. in 1923, and somebody yeah. said, a parent said to me, "Where do you, you know, like where we are today? Where do you see this going?" I said, "Read Brave New World." That's right. Because and that 1984. was yeah, it, that well, brave. The, the yes, leftists actually change. no, no. The leftists yes. actually have a decision to make. Yes. At this moment in the culture, where they have to decide whether they're going Aldous Huxley route or George Orwell, yes. they have a decision to make. We're, exactly. we're kind of at a, we're at kind of at a, a fork and in the that road was right their now. vision. That was their <laughs> eugenic vision. Yeah, yeah. Were those books and Aldous and Julius were uh, grandfather to the father of the agnostic movement, um, uh, w- which. I am spacing his name right now, but but so again, the fruit of the tree yeah. and, and these demonic fruits that are coming from that. So, yeah, and, and I Julian Huxley, who we said earlier, lays much of the groundwork with with G. Brock Chisholm, who you referred to, Claire, yeah. as the director he was the head of, the, of the UNESCO, and he, which was it, yeah. the educational was the, arm yes, of the UN. Yes, so, he was the, yes, he was the director general of the United Nations Ethical Society Cultural yes. Organization, UNESCO, who sponsored. Yes. That um, symposium on sex ed, yes. uh, that the Swedish delegates brought the blueprint for what Mary Calderon would would build Sikas off of. Let, uh, are you frame? Are you guys seeing the timbers yet? <laughs> yes. We, uh, well, and I want to. I'm going to end with this and then go back to you. I'm but, not in a hurry. Um, I'm, I'm this being was educated a, too. This was a Kinseyan follower who was Iris Reese, and he was the author of An End to Shame, was the name of his book. Right, of course. And, what, and he was, uh, by the way, the president of SICUS at one point. And he said, to build sexual pluralism, we must firmly root out the narrow thinking 
about sex that exists in our basic institution, family, political, economic, religious, and educational. We need to change our whole basic social institutional structure. We don't need a majority of the nation in order to make significant changes in our society. We need only a small percentage of the population who are dedicated to promoting all of our sexual rights. Yep. So a small group of people have shifted our nation. Is all it's ever taken. Yes. Yeah. And yes. the same is and true on the other side been. of the aisle. If conservatives yes. and, and godly people men and women take a stand. have, have <laughs> the committed minority. Yes. Um, exactly. Now, before we turn to um, to this this individual named Lester Kirkendall, um, who's kind of one of the keys, I think, or puzzle pieces to understanding the, the timbers of the house, um, helps understand the obscenity exemption laws, because this was one of the great victories of the left's long walk through the institutions. It was a way to um, prevent concerned citizens from even exercising their political will to stop some of the pornographic sex ed in the schools. Yes. What are our obscenity exemptions? Because we have obscenity laws in America still, many exactly. of them on the books that aren't enforced. Exactly. But if you're using, for example, the book you have uh, Which from, we're about to turn yes, to. Yes, yeah. yes. If you're using um, porn, uh, and, and there are cited examples of now I'm hearing of teachers that are showing porn in the classroom, and they would normally be arrested if they were your next door neighbor, but because they're an educator That's right. and they're doing it in a school setting and they're doing it for educational purposes, right. they're allowed to do that. And um, so there is a small group of parents and, and experts who are going after these obscenity laws. And I feel- Obscenity exemption laws. Obscenity exemption laws, yes. And um, I, I feel honored because Texas was the first state to have gone after it uh, a few years back. It was not successful. And right. then- and, um, well, you and Monica Klein were yes, working on that. Yes, and then, uh, um, uh, yes, there were four of us. I say four moms <laughs> that went before the committee and we, we got it passed out of the committee, but it never made it to the floor uh, for a vote. But because nobody knows that, nobody knows that porn is legal, you know, obscenity, it is legal to show children obscenity in the classroom. This is legalized child abuse. It, exactly. Yes, it is. Exactly. And think about the child who's been traumatized already by sex abuse, yep. and you're putting this in front of them. That's right. You're also re-traumatizing them as well. So um, uh, so this, the, and Indiana uh, went after it. Uh, and so I got to be there to testify for that. And one of the former attorney generals got up and he, what was funny was we sent them, we went into the, the, the parents in Indiana went into the schools. And I will tell you, Seth, there are parents all over this country that are going into their children's libraries and going into public libraries right. and having to read the most pornographic yeah. Awful and sometimes when they take it to the school board meeting and they yes, read it to the school they board, read it. they turn yes. their mic off yes. and they say that's inappropriate. Yes. yes. You just <laughs> proved the whole point. Absolutely. That's why they're reading okay. it to say it's well, inappropriate. When, I, when, I was, uh, when we were testifying before the Indiana yeah. um, Senate committee uh, about this. It's removing, called gaslighting. Yes, <laughs> yes. We gave them, uh, the, the parents of Indiana had put together a packet and with excerpts from the books and from what schools all over the state. And so I read this and I'm like, whoa, this is even worse than what I thought and gave those packets to the senators. 
their aides came out before the testimony. They came out and said, okay, we read the packet. Wow, that's a lot of information. We know you guys probably won't do this, but please don't read this aloud during the proceedings because this is being televised and classrooms of children will be watching this. Yeah. And, you can't um, make this stuff up. Yeah, ne Aaron Negegaard, who had been the former attorney general in Indiana, he said, if I, if we can't, even if you can't as adults read this, yeah. why are we giving this to children as homework? You yeah. know, so it, it's just ludicrous where we're at. Because they want your children. Uh, yes. <laughs> May I uh, add a, a little excerpt to this? Please, Claire. Uh, years ago, when we went before these, uh, our state board of education, we took Zing Sex Comics. <laughs> Uh, by Saul Gordon. Oh, it's yes. In there. <laughs> wow. uh, I did, uh, not my story today, but he's, he's in there. In the sequence, and yes. he was a, such a sex pervert, you can't imagine. <laughs> and he admitted it. But we took them to show the state board. We were not permitted to do that. Yeah. They didn't even want to see it. Yeah. Because they already knew about him. Yeah. Yeah. See, he had I served on a committee statewide. Yeah, he had already. They knew who he was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and, and and so, the, but the whole point, right, of, of of your book here, Claire, and our conversation is that this has been brewing under the surface for a long time. Yes. We've been professionalizing pedophiles. Yes, that's what we've Except, been doing. Yes. Normalizing. Yes. Yeah, and the and and the power of normalization is something that can never be um, overstated. Mm -hmm. um, that if if you do the the wrong thing once, uh, and and and, and you can fail to stand up against evil. Mm -hmm. um, it yep. just gets normalized in the culture because culture is to us what water is to a fish. It's all we know. Mm -hmm. yes. um, and so if you can normalize things in the culture for long enough, the people just become numb to it. Yep. Um, and yes. that's actually really dangerous for a republic yes. Yes. Is, that, is that when people who would otherwise not agree with the targeting of children, the sexualizing of children, become so accustomed to that as part of their culture, that's one of the last uh, straws of a civilization. Well, parents are the barrier. Yeah. And Plan Planned Parenthood has even said that, yeah. that parents are the barrier to services for children. Yeah. And so um, I will say that as Kinsey's science has been used, um, and, and a lot of parents are like, well, I homeschool, so this doesn't affect me. Um, you know, or I have older people that, oh, well, thank goodness, I, I don't have any grandchildren, so I don't have to worry about this. Um, let I, lest I remind you, this is because what happened is the family fell apart. As the sexual revolution went forward, and Kinsey said there would be long successful marriages, uh, we saw single parenting explode when sex ed Sika started up mm -hmm. in 64. Um, we have the teen national statistics show teen STDs and pregnancy rate exploded mm -hmm. and the um, single parent families exploded. So now we have to have family courts to help decide who's who's gonna get the kids because there's all these families that are falling apart. So now we have a handbook uh, that's called the principles of the family law of, uh, the, the law of family disillusion. And in the beginning it says the changes, this was written in 2002, the changes in terminology cannot be expected by themselves to revolutionize how custody allegations are viewed, but they may contribute to a broader reconceptualization of the enterprise. So we're not calling families families anymore. They're enterprises 
from who will uh, possess and control children to what adjustments and family roles will be most appropriate for the child. It affirms that the options are not limited to one or two prescribed models, but rather are spread out along a continuum. And they even say parents can be relied upon to have a gender and race biases. So courts must intervene in a family on child's behalf to determine the child's best interest. And we're seeing that where schools are training children up in the trans issues, and then the schools are actually stepping in and um, fighting for custody of the child yeah. because they wanna continue to transition them. And here's where Casey comes in. Some courts assume that the open homosexuality of a parent is detrimental to the child's interest. This treatment reflects moral judgment, not a scientific one. And even as a moral matter is subject to considerable debate. debate. So whose science are they using? They're using Kinsey's science. Yeah. So it's not even true science that they're using. And then we have the science of studying the American family for the last 70 years. Yeah. What's happened to it since yeah. we've done the sexual revolution, since Sikas came out? Yeah. So, so uh, we, we quoted Lester Kirkendall earlier. Who, who said in that Sika uh, study guide number one in 1969 that children are sexual from birth um, and can actually exercise sexual pleasure, yes. right? So this is, this is straight out of Kinsey. This is demonic stuff. Um, this is professionalizing pedophiles. But uh, Lester Kirkendall, maybe Claire, appears to be one of the more um, significant uh, individuals involved in, in the humanist experiment, part of the American Humanist Association, uh, a board member of CECAS, uh, very involved. Found, founding member. Founding member mm -hmm. of CECAS with of Mary six, Calderon. Six right. founders, he was one of them. Yeah, yeah. and um, he, 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 you quoted him making a fascinating admission. Uh, and I wanted to ask you both about this. And then I think some of you brought some of Lester Kirkendall's writings uh, with us today, yes. which I, I want you to kind of build out as, as you address this man. But you quoted him admitting something that that uh, we all kind of know to be true, but the left will never say out loud. Kirkendall explained actually that, that the population agenda movement, the, the population reduction movement, right? Too many people on planet Earth. It actually required the sex ed movement. That you actually had to have Sikhist style sex ed if you were going to usher in mm -hmm. a one world government to be able right. to deal with the the scientifically proven threat of of overpopulation. And here's what you you cite and quote Lester Kirkendall is saying. He said, effective contraceptive methods and in the long run population control were closely linked with physiological knowledge about sex a capacity for free discussion and attitudes towards sex roles and sex itself. Sex education, says Kirkendall, is thus clearly tied in a socially significant way to family planning and population limitation policy. And today, Sikas's new name is Sikas Sex Ed for Social change. Well, we have to ask ourselves the question, what kind right. of social change right. are they actually seeking? Um, let me add one more thing here, Claire. Um, Mary Calderon, Mary Calderon, um, founder of Secus, once said, uh, mere discussion of facts is not enough. It must be undergirded 
by a set of values, end quote. Um, she's talking about sex ed. She's saying you can't just talk about facts. Mm -hmm. that, that conversation with children has to be undergirded yep. by a set of values. Whose values? What social change? Yeah. Whose religion, right? Yeah. The religion of humanism, which is kind of the thesis of your entire book. So uh, let's talk about Lester Kirkendall. Let's talk about how sex ed needs to be used to bring about population limitation. Yes. Well, a little bit of background on him. First of all, uh, he, he represented actual family life education at the founding of SICUS because he already taught family life education in Oregon at the State University. So I believe it was called the State University. Now, who's who described Lester Kirkendall as a Unitarian? <laughs> <laughs> he listed himself as a Baptist when he was asked. You actually made the point in your book that much of the American Humanist Association movement was actually birthed out of the Unitarians. Yes. Which was interesting. Yes, it was. <laughs> it was. And uh, actually, Unitarianism, uh, as I see it, is sort of a stepping stone to, to atheism. Mm. That's the way I view it. Yeah. Uh, you just become very open. Well, they're universalists. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So anyway, the way he was described, uh, it's, it's especially confusing because uh, in 1966, he assumed directorship of the Atheistic American Humanist Association. Oh, wow. and that was two years after Sikas' founding. That's right. He became the director. Yes. Mm -hmm. And, of course, they're dedicated to the eradication of God. Yeah, that's right. Yes. <laughs> Let's so. say that again. The American Humanist Association is dedicated to the eradication, eradication of God. Absolutely. God, or, or rather, um, God doesn't exist, and I really hate him. <laughs> exactly. Which is very strange. And for now, I think it would be good for, uh, I meant to say this earlier, that your listeners should uh, equate humanism just with atheism yeah it's easier for now to just picture that when we talk about humanism now at the same time uh he also served as editor of sexology magazine which mm -hmm. has been described mm -hmm. as very lewd and obscene yes i used to have copies of it i don't <laughs> i no longer do um he he authored uh, oh this is good too he authored uh, Premarital Intercourse and Interpersonal Relations. It was, uh, it's a book, and it became notorious for containing uh, case histories mm -hmm. of 668 premarital uh, intercourse experiences presented in living color <laughs> <laughs> to, uh, uh, involving 200 college-level males. Wow. Again, a Kinsey type thing. Yeah. Okay. But he's probably best known to us <laughs> for having authored this book uh, called a new, a new Bill for Sexual Rights and Responsibilities, published wow. in 1976. And I don't believe I'm allowed to show this. Obscenity. Uh, the, <laughs> yes, the pictures that are well, in we, here. Let's just put you in a public high school. Yes, classroom. if you're in a Absolutely. school or a library, we can show this. Absolutely. <laughs> Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll try that sometime. You can describe what's in this. Uh, what's in this book, yes. 
it the uh, the human many humanists have signed it by the way, including seven seven found a uh, uh, board of members, members yeah. or a board of directors. Wow. And uh, it uh, either condones or uh, uh, endorses abortion, extramarital sex, premarital sex, homosexuality, bisexuality, pornography, sex among or with children, free sex for criminals. Uh, Kinsey had to take care of the criminals. <laughs> and, uh, and mentally handicapped. In other words, uh, the, uh, I think they have that now, don't they? For criminals, you can have sex if you want with your wife. Conjugal visits. But yes. uh, <laughs> I'm sure now it doesn't have to be a wife. And the uh, legalization of prostitution, sadomasochism, masturbation, and the right to birth control. And last but not least, comprehensive sex education. Yep, there it is. Signed by many Signed. of the leading humanists and yes, revolutionaries, yes. including Larry people like John Money. Yes. Uh, John Money, for those of the people mm -hmm. listening who don't know, is the first architect at the attempt of uh, gender transition, mm -hmm. uh, gender mutilation surgeries. And so it refers to a young boy um, whose circumcision was botched. And so his family, with John Money, decided to just entirely castrate their right. newborn Don't son girl, try to create kind of a yeah. you know manufactured uh, female yeah. parts and then raise him as a girl mm -hmm. uh, well that that man ended up killing himself mm -hmm. committing suicide as an adult um, and when he found it out his entire life just unraveled after that and understood mm -hmm. why his life was always so horrible and you even had, uh, and I'm forgetting the name of the the person who first opened up a, a full-blown gender transition clinic at John Hopkins University. I'm forgetting the name of the, the individual right now. But he shut it down uh, right. because he was saying that we, this is not helping John Hopkins uh, shut it down. Uh, anyone yeah. at all. Because and the, so that's John Money who's signing were, this, guys. Yeah. <laughs> um, and in many other, uh, of, of some of these revolutionaries, you've got um, Ira Reese here, who, yeah. who would later John lead Seekus, who you just referred to. Paul Kurtz, who was the editor-in-chief of The Humanist. Um, uh, Albert Ellis, uh, interesting, you cite him yes. at length in your book. The Institute for Rational Living. Yes, yes, uh, yeah, <laughs> whatever. Group. Yeah, uh, and um, uh, Brigitta Linner, um, a marriage counselor and co-author of Sex and Society in Sweden. Yes. Um, who yes. actually, I believe, reported on some of the gathering of, of, of the, the UNESCO-sponsored uh, symposium on sex education and right, health education, right. um, and uh, Alan Bell of the Institute for Sex Research at Indiana University, mm -hmm. later renamed the Kinsey Institute. So mm -hmm. there it is, guys. I doubt you'll find this anywhere, um, but that's who Lester Kirkendall was, and he's openly admitting that um, the goal is a one-world government. The yes, goal yes. is actually population control. Population control. control. Um, and so... It, it, it's it's you say that today and you'd be labeled a conspiracy theorist, Claire, and I'd be right. And yet yes. you've got one of the most significant individuals spawned out of the sexual revolution, Lester Kirkendall, yes. openly admitting this. And so why is this? Because population control is best achieved if people do it willingly. Mm -hmm. um, the way you get them to do it willingly is to encourage radical sexual chaos and pump everyone full of birth control. Mm -hmm. And 
puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones today. Yep. Yeah. Um, because they'll be easier to control and they'll be limiting their own population volitionally. They'll be choosing it themselves. Right. Because birth control assumes more liberal, ide liberal ideas about mm -hmm. sex. Right. And those more liberal ideas about sex are planted in the early minds of young people through sex ed. That's why it's linked directly to population limitation, um, which is one of the most common shared goals mm -hmm. of so many of the revolutionaries that mm -hmm. you talk about that were designing these humanist organizations. Yeah. And once again, Saul Gordon of Zing Sex Comics signed this. So that you know, should make you feel confident. <laughs> <laughs> um, very briefly, um, as we start winding down a little bit here, Claire, um, let's talk about um, j just some of the communist links. Um, you, you were talking with me off air about Joseph Fletcher, who we've already touched on as the oh, father yes, of situation ethics. Yes. Um, talk about some of uh, his communist links um, because this actually starts to become a very common denominator, doesn't it, of, of yes. many of the people you yes, talk about in this yes. book, even if the founders and board members of, of SICUS weren't actual outed communists, they almost, almost all of them were involved and had links to communist yes. front yes. Um, organizations. Yes. And so you start to wonder, okay, what is the common denominator here? You know, because Hitler would say things like, um, I don't care if you oppose me. I've got your children in my schools. Uh, right. This is like th this this goal of, of, of reaching children, uh, of, of, of radicalizing them at an early age. It's sexualizing them at an early age um, is a creed and common um observation of communist societies mm -hmm. because if you can get the kids while they're young they'll serve you forever and if they're if they're educated in echo chambers where they only hear one side of things yes then they'll be that much easier to control yes. and if you can sexualize them when they're young Right. And break down their moral inhibitions yeah. and systems of values that should be being inculcated by the family. Oh, then they'll be even easier to control. Yes, um, because when you encourage uh, sin and chaos, it creates docile citizens mm -hmm. who cannot govern themselves. So anyways, all that to say, okay. it's interesting how many communists yes. were behind so much of the sexual revolution and the push for the radical sex ed. If your listeners will forgive me, I can't find the quote. I have it with me, so I'm going to try to paraphrase. But Joseph uh, Fletcher was identified, in fact, by uh, Harry Ward, uh, an, a, an undercover investigator for the FBI mm. at the time. And... Um, he went on to, well, he actually testified, that is uh, uh, Herbert Philbrick, that he, as an undercover agent, uh, joined the Communist Party and actually worked with Joseph Fletcher. <laughs> oh, and Joseph you did Fletcher, say that in your book. And Je Joseph Fletcher was a uh, reverend and uh, from the Union Theological Society, which has Neither. always been very left, right. leftist. So that was him. Now, 
We mentioned uh, Harriet Pilpal, and I think if we get yes. back to her, that'll be fine. But we want to finish the thought about the uh, uh, communist people. I want, remember she worked with the, uh, she was an, an actual authority with the ACLU, American Civil Liberties yeah. Union. So for people who missed it, you're, you're talking about Harriet Pilpel. Yes. She was a lawyer, came out of the ACLU. Yes. Um, and again, a, a pal of CKS, <laughs> a pal of Lester Kirkendall. Yes. Right. I just wanted, I just paused you so people heard the name you said. Okay. Uh, and one, another architect, yes. right, of yes. this stuff. Yes. yes, but she, um, having been very high up with the ACLU, it's uh, interesting that a former undercover operative by the name of David Gumar stated four years after Secus was founded in 1969, he said, and she was still with them, the present ACLU board consists of 68 members, 30 one of whom have succeeded in amassing a total of at least 355 communist front citations. <laughs> That's the group that she was with. Wow. Now, while she served SICUS as their general counsel, she was also, you'll like this one, uh, a member and leader of the Association for the Study of Abortion, uh, the Association for the Voluntary Sterilization of People, and uh, Planned Parenthood, of course. So wow. I wanted to point that out. Uh, and uh, you you make the point actually here in your book, Claire, that, that Harriet Pilpel, a Sikas official, was also involved with the ethical movement, the American Ethical yes, Union, yes. which um, many people, I was not aware of this at all. And so let me just tell people, um, Claire brilliantly tracks here um, the the early harbingers of humanism, um, that the American Humanist Association was not like, it's not like they came fully onto the scene out of nowhere. Right. There were lots of seeds that were already yes. growing in the American soil yes. uh, such that an organization like the American Humanist Association or the, the first American, the first humanist manifesto um, could could come onto the scene at all. Exactly. And, and you trace that as these American ethical cultural societies um, later birthed uh, in the name Society for Ethical Culture or American Ethical Union Which was by a, Felix a Adler. Yes. The American Ethical Union was international. That's right. Uh, and it, there, was a, there was a national body and an international body. Exactly. And so it's interesting when we start to frame these timbers once again, we start to find it impossible to believe that the individuals framing the house were not talking with one another. We find it impossible to believe exactly. that they were not functioning off of a common blueprint that was struck up um, before any building was begun. And so Harriet Pilpel, um, who <laughs> with the Greenbaum, Wolf and Ernst <laughs> legal team helped draft the Articles of Incorporation for Secus. Yes. And yet, wait for this, Harriet Pilpel is also involved in the ethical movement. The American Ethical Union was mm -hmm. a member of the American Ethical Union's Board of Ethical Lecturers Advisor Advisory Committee. Um, and you cite a November-December 1964 issue of Ethical Culture Today reporting, quote, the office of Greenbaum, Wolf, and Ernst provides legal counsel for the American Ethical 
Union, the first group of out-and-out humanist organizations before the officially recognized humanist movement and the American Humanist Association. Exactly. They were all talking to one another Mm -hmm. the entire time. Mm -hmm. Here are two others that were talking to each other, if you'd like to know. Please. Two founders of the ACLU. Mm. One was Harry F. Ward. He was an identified communist and the first ACLU chairman. William Z. Foster, who was the uh, former head of the Communist Party in the United States. And in 1932, and I'm going to quote him in a minute, Foster called for a cabinet-level Department of Education, Hmm. which we never had before, in his book called Toward a Soviet America. And this is what he said. The schools colleges, and universities will be coordinated and grouped under a national department of education and its state and local branches. The studies will be revolutionized, being cleansed of religious, patriotic, and other features of the bourgeois, which is the middle class in lingo of the communists. Uh, the features of the bourgeois ideology. The students will be taught internationalism and the general ethics of the new socialist society. Wow. (laughs) And she joined that group and was very active. Wow. What year was that? That was in 1932. Wow. Yes. It's almost like they had a plan the entire time. (laughs) Framing the timbers. Yeah, that's right. And also keep in mind that the uh, almost 50%, if I didn't already say this, almost 50% of the Sikhist study guides were written by uh, Isidore Rubin, uh, who had been identified as a communist. And the actual record of that testimony is in the appendix of my book. Wow. Yes. And you're, you're, for anyone who finds this book, the appendix is full of additional, <laughs> very helpful information. And many, many references. To so you, you, uh, you, you cite an editorial in The Humanist um, from 1968 called Is World Government Dead? Um, and The Humanist writes in 1968, if there is one principle upon which all humanists are united, it is the continued commitment to a world order based upon world law. That's from the Humanist Magazine in 1968, Mm -hmm. saying the one common denominator shared amongst all humanists is a one-world government. Mm -hmm. So much so that in 1971, many leaders of the American Humanist Association, you cite here in your book, Claire, um, pulled out a full-page advertisement in the New York Times on July 27, 1971, calling for, quote, a world federal government (laughs) to be open at all times to all nations without right of secession with the power to curb overpopulation. One of the signers of that advertisement in 1971 in the New York Times was Paul Ehrlich. Paul Ehrlich sat on the board of Planned Parenthood. Paul Ehrlich is the author of the very infamous book, The Population Bomb, written in 1963 or 64, that repeated the claims of Thomas Malthus from the late 1700s and early 1800s that if if over if that the world population wasn't significantly reduced in the next few decades, you'd have massive starvation 
um, all around the world because there wouldn't be enough resources to handle the population growth. 30 years after Paul Ehrlich writes his book, The Population Bomb, the world population had doubled. Malnutrition was at an all-time low, and we were the fattest generation in American history. So once again, I don't think science means what they think it means. Um, and, and yet, uh, this is how long they've been laboring at that. Uh, as, as, we, as we kind of wind down, guys, um, because we're short on time and we want to respect your time, let's, um, and, and of course, Claire, you interject at any time, um, let's add this last piece. Let's talk about the occult. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to this part three episode of our long form conversation with Claire Chambers and Audrey Werner. Incredible information. Let me ask you something. If, you're, if you've been with us now for all three parts, um, how much of this did you know before tuning into this podcast? How many of your friends, family members, and coworkers do you think know any of this? My guess would be very little to none. Um, so to, to <laughs> cite Hosea 4.6 once again, the, the Bible might know what it's talking about when it says that uh, God's people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. You can't defeat an enemy that you don't understand. And we're trying to help you understand not just the enemy, but their coordination and how long they've been fighting this battle against the church, against Christianity, against children, against the family, against marriages, against a healthy moral fabric. And so we, we've talked about how th this, this fake science and sex ed was being used to upend and change laws, dozens of Bible-based laws in America that, that allowed for the Democrat Party to do what they're doing today, which is what? To lessen penalties and criminal consequences for pedophiles and rapists. <laughs> Have you noticed how they're like very passionate about that? That goes back. That goes back to the American Law Institute and their model penal code and the twin of the Planned Parenthood president consulting with the American Law Institute and drafting the model penal code to change the laws in America. Do you understand why this is so significant? So if you're starting to now wonder, hey, Seth, this sounds just kind of like demon stuff. This is kind of sounds like a spiritual war. Yes. Good. Now we have arrived at part four, which is coming out next, where we're going to dive into the occult side of all of this. And there, there is a demonic nature to this battle, uh, brothers and sisters, with the UN, with actual Satanists that Alfred Kinsey looked up to, whose sexual data he was trying to get. This rabbit hole is very disturbing, and but we're going down it for you to start waking you up. By the way, it is an interesting. What what does Hugh Hefner use to represent Playboy? A rabbit, <laughs> right? So yeah, well, we need to expose those rabbits, <laughs> these humping rabbits in the rabbit hole, and start exposing all of this. And so stay tuned for next week and the final edition of this four-part series with Claire Chambers, a woman who knew it all in the 70s, and her protege, Audrey Werner, my dear friends, who are going to now explain to us the demonic occult side of all of this. And when someone tells you who they are, to quote Maya Angelou, you should believe them. And they're going to tell you who they are. Stay tuned for next week. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. Mm -hmm.